0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to this special live edition of the Cynical Podcast, coming today from the Asia Society of Switzerland here in Zurich. Let's hear what that famous Swiss enthusiasm sounds like. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. Uh, the Cynic Podcast is a weekly discussion of current affairs in China and is produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our free email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, or at the website subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today on the Sinica a podcast, the good people at the Asian Society Switzerland have convened what I am sure will be a fascinating conversation about one of the most widely criticized and least well-understood policies to come out of Beijing in recent years, the social credit system. Is it a manifestation of Chinese techno-authoritarianism, a police state-run amok is it a sinister and Orwellian system as, as the as the media has often portrayed? Uh, is it just a pragmatic solution to a problem that bedevils this famously low-trust society of contemporary China? Well, this evening we will try and shed some light on what the social credit system actually is, and just as importantly, what it is not. So we're delighted to be joined for the first time by Mania Kutsi, uh, who... Uh, Created and runs the fantastic website, whatsonweibo.com. Uh, if you haven't uh, already started reading it, you really, I really highly encourage you to do so. Uh, it focuses on what's trending on China's popular social media platforms like Weibo and WeChat or Weixin. It's an absolutely indispensable resource for anyone who is interested in gaining a better understanding of contemporary China. And Mania is simply one of the most astute observers of public opinion as lensed through social media out there. Uh, out of China. Uh, in, in all of China-watching land, there isn't really anyone who's doing quite what she's doing. So, Manya, a very warm welcome to Seneca, and sorry that it's taken so long for me to finally get you on the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, And uh, we're also joined again by Rohir Kremers, who had been on the show a couple of times before and is always one of my favorite guests. Uh, He's now a lecturer at the University of Leiden, where he's now been for a couple of years since finishing his postdoc work at Oxford. Uh, He's also a China digital economy fellow at the New America Institute. Uh, Rohir has written extensively on the social credit system in particular one great colossal paper of like 15,000 words in length or something like that. It's quite quite a tome. It's great. Uh, And he's forgotten more about it than I will ever know. He's a quite prolific translator of obscure, dense, Chinese legal documents. It's work that no, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, but Rohir has taken it up with, with real gusto and he's made invaluable contributions on the study of modern China. Uh, plus he's also a guitar player. So, uh, that, that's very much to his credit too. Welcome back to Sinica, Rohir.
2: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: So Mania and Rohir, uh, let's jump right in. And if you want to, if either of you want to add anything, uh, to what the other says, I don't know who wants to go first, but, uh, what are the, the, uh, What is what is the problem or what are the problems that the social credit system is intended to address in uh, maybe another way of putting this is what is meant with sincerity uh, in the proposed social credit system? Well, we start with you. Well, here. you can go first. What do they want to do with this system?
2: Well, where it originally comes from, you see the term social credit appearing in the early 2000s. And there it's very much a response to the development of the market economy that brings, with, that brings problems with it, right? Um, people cheat. People sell substandard goods. People don't pay their debts. People sell counterfeit goods uh, and so on and so forth. And it really started out in the market economy, that idea that you should simply do what is expected of you in a normal market economic environment. Uh, Over the past couple of years, that notion has broadened somewhat to also include things like benefit fraud, uh, but also official abuse. So it's meant to address the the problem of a a
1: low trust environment in China, essentially. Exactly.
2: There is another problem as well, which is slightly more focused and connects slightly also to the Sesame Credit initiative that we'll be talking about. But that's very much the credit angle of it, where the Chinese financial system has historically dealt very badly with individuals. And so part of what some angles of the social credit system are about building up a consumer financial infrastructure.
1: Right. Because unlike the United States, where we have things like Equifax, where we have uh, credit rating agencies or I guess we call them uh, credit scoring bureaus, there's nothing like that in China at present, is that right?
2: Well, now there is, but there, but there wasn't back then. And one problem with China is also that until very, very recently, China was largely a cash economy. So you didn't re- really even have records of people's financial history. So if you're going to lend to them, what are you going to base that decision on? Very good point. Uh, Manya, how has this been discussed in the official media
1: before we get into public opinion on this? how has the social credit system been sold to the Chinese public? and how, what's the messaging been been all about?
0: Um, it's not really been sold as a system per se, although the word in Chinese also has the word system, but it's more about creating a culture of trust. So it's actually being brought as, a culture or an idea, more than more than a system per se. And um, in state media, you see different things. You see some really dry reports on people having meetings. And um, well, I wouldn't recommend you. Well, you, of course, I would recommend everybody reading it, but maybe just before bedtime. Um, <laughs> but uh, and then what you see in um, state media is a lot of cartoons, which has. Uh, Really, I I think that was really interesting to see the different type of cartoons that were used with these articles. And these were mostly about first uh, bringing harmony to the people by the social credit system and then punishing the people who need to be punished. So it's it's both um, a rewarding system and a very punitive system and uh, that's quite straightforward in these cartoons that you see in state media.
2: Now
1: I, I I don't know about you guys, but I'm very suspicious any time I see some initiative being promoted through cartoon-based propaganda. But uh, let's leave leave that aside for now. Uh, it, that's interesting that that they don't seem to be sort of uh, selling it on its direct merits. Just sort of this vague promise of bringing harmony and uh, maybe you know putting a floor. But surely um, when they talk about punishing the ne'er do wells, the, the the people who are delinquent and stuff like that. Um, there's reason for us to be suspicious that this is part of a, a broader sort of surveillance of a, a way to nudge behaviors in in a desired direction, and you know that sounds very intrusive. Is that not something that that Chinese people seem so concerned about?
0: Um, I'm now talking maybe rohir can uh, answer from another um, perspective. But just looking at uh, social media, what people are saying about this, actually, I found. Uh, over the past year that people have been very positive about this because finally now there is a way to punish all those people that, you know, are misbehaving on trains or smoking a cigarette in the middle of a hospital, or, you know, recently some stories that went trending of people refusing to get up from their window seat, which they didn't even have a ticket for on the train. And now they're like, okay, finally, they, they can be blacklisted and they deserve not to take the train for the coming 180 days.
1: You, you wrote an interesting piece. I mean, we'll talk about the, uh, the difference between the official uh, uh, credit system that's being uh, planned for the year 2020 and Sesame Credit and how these two are often conflated. But speaking specifically about Sesame Credit, which is uh, ruled out by Alibaba, the, the gigantic e-commerce uh, giant in, in, in China, um, you wrote a piece about how it's not just the desire to see these wrongdoers punished, but also their positive benefits – that people seem to believe that they can they can have by participating by opting in to Sesame Credit. What what are those? How would you describe the why why people would want this in their lives? Yeah.
0: So, this is such a contrast between day and night if you look at I'm talking about Western media. Of course, I mean you know I, I know it's a little bit of a dangerous term sometimes, but mainstream American or European media saying all these citizens are having their uh, score, and this is dystopia, And then I look at Weibo and what my friends in in China are saying, they're like, "Oh, yes, finally my credit score is six hundred fifty, you know now I can uh, rent a bike without doing a having a, to pay a deposit." Recently, some hospitals in China are experimenting with people who have a good credit score, that they can skip lines, they can have uh, rent wheelchairs for free. Uh, But also there are more commercial activities like uh, you can try out the new Ford car for three days, test drive it for free if you have a high credit score. There are many, many examples, but really nice perks, really nice things that uh, you can benefit from.
2: People use it on their online dating accounts as well.
1: Oh, really? You can advertise your your, your social your Sesame Credit score on online dating. I mean, it sounds to me like a little bit like how excited I get when I'm about to hit, you know, a platinum status on my mileage card for an airline. Is that is that a fair analogy?
2: Well, in very many ways, the uh, Sesame Credit system is, is actually, it's a combination of a user trust system on an e-commerce platform that presents itself as a trusted intermediary and a loyalty scheme. So, yes, that's an absolutely right comparison.
1: <laughs> yeah, very, very different, as you say. Um, I, mean, I suppose some people would hear this and suggest that there are pretty fundamental differences uh, between the political culture uh, that would inform, say, uh, a a state that would come up with such a scheme in the first place, I mean, t- talking about the official system, and a Western public that hears news about this and, you know, it recoils in horror, reacts very negatively to it, you know, and generally assumes the worst of it. Um is that what we've seen? Is as that, that what we've seen playing out here? Totally different culturally conditioned norms about, you know, the relationship, the right relationship between state and society. Is that how you would describe what's happening here in the difference in the response?
2: Well, certainly one thing that I should point to is I think the Chinese state, since pretty much the last two millennia, has had a much bigger uh, uh, claim to moral authority. Um, In Chinese history, you've never quite had something like a separate, organized church that sort of parallels the Catholic Church that sort of could take responsibility for, you know, what is the good life? How should people behave over the bare minimum standard of lawfulness? And so that idea of the state has been inherited to a, to a significant degree by the Chinese Communist Party, which also adds on the socialist sort of notion of the of the malleable human being, right, social engineering. And so you are in a system where, at least within the logic of that system, it is not illegitimate for the state to not just want people to obey the law, but for people to live virtuously. And, and I think we find that a bit scary. Mania, what do you think?
0: Um, what I think is that the perspective, looking at this social me- uh, social credit system, social media. I'm always talking about social media. <laughs> um, is that the lens is so political that we forget that there are more ways to look at this system than just political. I mean, it's political. It's uh, there, are, like Rogier already mentioned, there are many economic dimensions to it. There are cultural dimensions to it, and I feel that um, in uh, we've somehow we in the West we've somehow been trapped in this one-dimensional vision of this system or this policy, uh, just looking at it from that angle politically, and also uh, from the idea that it's the state versus the people, right. always the state versus the people, like the rat the the Tom and Jerry the cat uh, catching the rat and it's much more multi-dimensional than that so we should be careful not to you know only look at it through one certain lens
2: I think I think the meta problem is the following I'm I'm a China scholar. I move in academia. And the dominant question that has shaped uh, contemporary China studies over the last two, three decades is, how the hell is this place still around? Right, right. You're supposed to have disappeared into the dustbin of history together with the USSR and all these other socialist regimes. And so we start out with that by, by seeing the existence of the People's Republic in China today as a fundamental aberration. That in itself is already wrong and therefore everything that emanates from it must be wrong as well.
1: Yeah, that's a, a bold statement.
2: <laughs> I, I
1: was mentioning earlier that in the United States we have uh, these credit uh, scoring organizations, Equifax, I think uh, one of them is called tr- trans, what is it called transUnion Experian I think these are the three biggest ones. Uh, and they have a, a shocking amount of data about us. I mean, I, I check my credit score fairly religiously, maybe the same way, uh, because, you know, it, it allows me then, to, if I know I'm, I'm I'm going to try to take out a loan on a new vehicle or I want to do some repairs to my house and I want to take out a bank loan, that's going to be the number that decides. And they have records of, of things and they're quite explicit about it, about your uh, debt burden, the size of your debt burden, about your repayment history on everything from you know electrical utilities to uh, you know finances on you know, your they know how much money you actually make. They have quite a bit of information. My colleague uh, Jeremy Goldcorn on an earlier podcast had pointed out how they he, he I can go online and find out he can go online and find out exactly how much I paid for my house. Uh, that seems rather intrusive to a lot of people. In fact, I think you can't do that in China. You wouldn't be able to, to get that information. So is there a, what, why, why are the, the Americans especially uh, so, uh, so vexed by this, this idea of a Chinese social credit system when they themselves seem so willingly to expose so much of their personal information?
2: The Equifax story goes, in fact, even further when you take a look at their history. Uh, until the first uh, cr- uh, consumer uh, credit protection regulations came in in the non- 1970s, Equifax would just profile people on the basis of race, huh. uh, gender, uh, the quality of their marriage as told to them by, the, uh, by their neighbors. Uh, if you were homosexual, you know, they'd know. And Do they vote for you or against you? <laughs> <laughs> well... Um, America of the 1960s, you tell me. Um, but but the point is, um, Western societies, and I think America is even an outlier at that point, um, the foundational narrative of uh, America is lawful resistance against overbearing government power. That, that's the essential story of the U.S. Uh, and therefore, the U.S. has a very thick layer of political thought and discourse and commonly held beliefs about abuse of public power, next to zero about private power. China, I would almost say, goes quite the opposite way. Europe, a little bit in the middle.
1: Interesting. Well, speaking of Europe, I mean, here we are in Europe in a a continent where uh, concerns over data privacy are are certainly far in excess of what they are, say, in the United States. Uh, I don't read European languages well. Uh, Both of you do. Both of you are are fluent in several of them. And and, uh, I don't have a good sense of how social credit has been covered outside of the English language press. So can you, can you tell me, Manu, what, what, what are European papers saying about the social credit system? Are they largely in line with what the American press is writing?
0: Um, I think more or less, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I do get quite some calls from journalists asking me about it. I, I also, of course, I'm Dutch and I follow the, the, the media in the Netherlands. Um, But what it seems like, there's a lot of clickbait articles. I also understand that a lot of media are under pressure, you know, to get more readers. Um, But what I feel is that there's one publication, this already started in 2015 with some American publications, putting out this story, grossly conflating all these things of the commercial credit systems with the scores that go uh, until uh, 850, I believe, 350 to 850. Uh, conflating this com- these commercial system with the government system. And actually, if I read all that, I would be really scared too. That's sure. a grim sc- story. But the thing is, there's no fact-checking. So if all these sources all the time trace back to these stories from 2015, 16, and even this week... If everybody's repeating the same scary stories, um, you know, that's lazy journalism. And it's also a little bit dangerous. But also, I understand why it's scary. If you don't do the fact-checking, the story that they bring is scary, right?
2: Right. Absolutely. And frankly, the fact-checking is really difficult. That paper that I wrote that Kaiser mentioned in the intro it took me two and a half years to write. Well. Wow. Two and a half years ago, in 2015,
1: though you had actually published some translations of the foundational documents that were that laid out the ideas of the social credit system, and it was actually based on largely on that translation, on your writing, uh, that this story sort of had legs in the first place. They they cited it quite widely, and uh, you know, you and and there were only a handful of other people who had actually waded through these these actual. Uh, regulatory documents. Well, first of all, where can we
2: find, if our Chinese isn't up to it, maybe where could we find those English translations? So there is a couple of good places. Uh, I've got some documents on my old website, which is called China Copyright and Media. Just Google it and you'll find it there. But the biggest collection of social credit documents is on ChinaLawTranslate.com, which is a website run by Jeremy Daum. And Jeremy's actually really gone into the nitty gritty of some of the ministerial uh, uh, credit systems and some of the local stuff as well.
1: Would I be right in saying that uh, when you, I remember we had this conversation, when you first started seeing the reports that were being written and citing you, you were frankly pretty horrified by by what they had done with the work that you, you had written. And you were trying to correct people here. In the
2: yeah, and this is the problem with, you know, when you're an academic and you're broaching like something that looks promising. Uh, I got to the social credit system because I was doing some preliminary research on data policy, big data policy by the, by the Chinese government. And you come across this document and you go, this looks interesting. I'll translate it, throw it online, had a couple of conversations with journalists. But the problem is uh, the 2014 plan, which is sort of like the big foundational document that everyone refers back to. Uh, it's a bit like Foucault. Everyone cites it without reading it. Um, and certainly a lot of people who cite it, even if they've read it, they haven't necessarily understood it very well or understood its logic or its context. And that's a problem, right? You you stumble onto something and you need to figure out what it is. And you have to do that in a, in a Chinese context where this is a plan. At that point in time, there were local trials going on, but you need to dig them out. You need to read through the materials. You need to read through the policy history. And in the meantime, you know, the the popular press, which isn't under the pressure of peer review, uh, sort of, you know, picks it up and picks up a couple of snippets and runs with it. And so what you get is sort of like you get a few snippets from a Chinese government document filtered through the Fu Manchu filter of (laughs) a a, a a mainstream media who, let's be honest, whose professional etiquette sort of seems to comprise that, you know, uh, China is not our friend
0: hmm. what did you first feel when you saw that I mean
2: what did I feel no, no. <laughs> <laughs> sorry
0: here. I want to know about your feelings too but <laughs>
1: mine aren't important <laughs> uh,
0: no I was like
2: you know this 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 isn't this is an interesting thing it's potentially a big thing um I'm going to need some time to sort of make sense of this this was also sort of i was very much in a big data mindset at that point in time and one of my discoveries later is that until the present day the government social credit system is not big data based at all there is no big data analysis Hmm. in the government social credit system there is in fact at the central level no quantitative scoring in the government social credit um what about in the local initiatives And this is where it gets difficult because, like I said, social credit as a term sort of emerges in the early 2000s. You have an interministerial joint committee that's formed to sort of start experimenting with sort of this stuff in 2007. But what always happens in China is you have have local mayors who pick up some of the stuff, think that that this might be useful in my city, or uh, if I do this well, I might get promoted. And so you start trials even before the central trials happening in many places, big places, uh, big cities like Hangzhou, smaller cities as well, um, and so it's it's very difficult to say you know this is this is the approach. We're just now getting to that stage, but you have some localities that will say um, you know. All, social, all governmental social credit systems are based on infringements of existing laws and regulations. You have to see it as an amplification device for the enforcement of existing laws and regulations. And some local governments have said, "Look, we're going to give you a score, and if you break these and these and these regulations, it's going to cost you X number of points. And if you start out as uh, and you start out as as, an, as as a sort of standard citizen, and you can drop down." And if you drop down, that is going to cost you access to subsidies or access to government jobs, for instance. Those are some of the examples. Um, there's been some research done uh, on Rongcheng, a small city in Shandong, who does it, and they essentially found out that over 90% of local residents are A, uh, which is sort of what you are when you haven't done anything really wrong, but also when you haven't done anything really right in terms of you know volunteer service, blood <laughs> donating, and so on and so forth. Oh, um, so
1: there are behaviors that will actually boost your score through, like, donating blood? If you down. live in Rongchung, oh, yes. okay. All right. No, so the, the, which, which raises the question of how much uniformity, how much consistency is there among all these different local pilot initiatives? Are they uh, scoring on the same criteria? Are they using the same scale? Are they punishing in, in similar ways? What, what, is there any uniformity? among these initiatives
2: there is family resemblance in terms of the fact that you know the things that you're going to be punished for which you know if a, if a local government is punishing you it has to be for things that are within the jurisdiction of a local government so that will be things like traffic uh, sort of violations of local regulations and 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 so on and so forth and so the things that they will be punishing are generally similar Obviously, the things that governments can take away from you are vaguely similar. Um, But I wouldn't say that there is a sort of harmonized uniform approach. Um, About a a good year, year and a half ago, the central government anointed uh, 10 model cities Mm -hmm. who are sort of to be taken as examples of how to do it. But these are also very different cities in terms of their economic level of development. Hangzhou is one, and obviously Hangzhou is sort of a major... Urban metropolis close to Shanghai. There's a couple of rural places as well. And and it and and obviously approaches are going to vary.
1: Well, the fact that Hangzhou is also home headquarters of Alibaba, which is the biggest sort of private initiative that we're all aware of, the Sesame Credit, that probably has helped this conflation. Let's We're going to move into a discussion of some of the things that the press is getting wrong, other than what we've already pointed out. But before we do that, I want to draw attention to a piece that, Mania, you just published yesterday on What's on Weibo, which was absolutely fascinating. What you had done, uh, if I am just maybe uh, can sum, sum it up, is you looked at attitudes expressed about it on foreign social media sites, especially on Twitter, versus on Chinese social media sites like Weibo and on Weixin. You looked at the conversations in a sort of uh, quantitative way, uh, at the, the the frequency of mentions, the intensity of sentiment, the, the direction of sentiment that people had, and you did kind of word clouds. So you looked at the kind of language that was used in China versus in the Western media uh, to describe these systems, and the, the results were were startlingly different can you can you elaborate on what these differences were
0: yes um well first what i do with Watson Weibo of course is i track trending topics um, and this was a little bit difficult for me with the social credit system because you know, I get called about it and it's all the time. I see it everywhere on Twitter, but it's not a trending topic on Weibo. So I was looking on Weibo, looking at what to write about, where do I find my angle? And then I was, that is my angle. My angle is the fact that <laughs> it is trending. I see it on Facebook. I see it on Twitter. I see it everywhere on Google News. And then I do not see it on Weibo. So, um, Is that
1: just due to internet censorship, though?
0: Um I don't think so. One of the reasons there are some websites like FreeWeibo, for example, sure. dot com, who uh, track the bigger topics, topics that are being censored. Uh, social credit system definitely is not one of them. And then another thing is that state media is actually trying to propagate articles that are about the system, and various local social credit systems are on Weibo. So if anything, I have the feeling that. Uh, Probably there are people out there who wish there was more uh, talked about on, uh, on Weibo instead of less. So I don't have a feeling that it's being censored at all. Uh, so then what I did is I um, started looking at the different media discourses in the West and in China and uh, just picked out random articles that ranked pretty high on Baidu News or on Google News. Three typical ones from Western media. Uh, three typical ones from English language, Chinese state media, and compare the words that pop up. And perhaps unsurprisingly, what you see in Western media, of course, is a lot of words like uh, the score, the credit, the government, uh, punishment, citizens, surveillance, and then on the Chinese Orwellian, side...
1: Orwellian, did you get that one? No,
0: what, they what only use it once, so it, it was not uh, enough well. to... Uh, uh,
1: what about Black Mirror? I think oh, oh was...
0: sorry. Yes, very good. Black Mirror is one of the biggest words. Thanks for reminding me. Does what everyone if...
1: know what Black Mirror is? How many of you have seen this, this Netflix show, Black Mirror? Many so people. it So it's a terrific show. I mean, I really quite enjoy it. Uh, it it's about, you know, the way that our uh, technologies, our everyday technologies projected into a pretty near-term future uh, can go horribly, horribly wrong. And there are often... Uh, What's the name of that episode from series Nosedive. one? Nosedive. Nosedive. There's one in particular about a system that looks suspiciously like a social credit system where everyone is constantly rating everyone else. It's like you rate your Uber driver or your Uber driver rates you, but uh, uh, this becomes the basis on which you are given social access to things. You can't get into the right parties if you're ha- if you're a three. If you're a five, you a three. If you're a five, you you're whisked right into the party or whatever. But And it's about a woman who... Uh, has a bad day, has a few bad interactions, and she takes a nosedive and, and basically her her credit score gets worse and worse. So that's often being compared to, right?
0: Well, you can see from Google Trends, you have a lot of websites where you can find these insights. You see that uh, if people Twitter about the China Social Credit System, the other thing that's most Twittered about is Black Mirror, and the same is with Google search results. If you uh, if people search most for both Black Mirror and China Social Credit System, uh, so that's such a different uh, story because if you look at China uh, Chinese state media, the words that pop up when you when they talk about China Social Credit System is more things more like harmony unifying <laughs> building together uh, enjoying together blacklists red lists so it's the the vocabulary is startling different. And, really. and, and
1: black mirror is very popular in china too it showed on a number of the uh the, the popular chinese video sites it's called he Jing. that that word didn't show up i guess
0: but it's you a cipher yeah no <laughs> right,
1: right that's 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 fascinating uh, yeah uh, so we, you mentioned blacklists as one of the words that showed up, but we hear a lot about these blacklists. Uh, we've, we've read a number of stories about uh, people who were denied uh, access to high-speed rail transportation or, or, or trains, and in a lot of the reporting that we've seen is this implicit idea that the blacklists are an integral part of the, uh, the nascent social
2: credit system. Is that true? It it is in fact the only really functioning part of the social credit system as it is uh, today. Um, The idea behind the blacklist system is really simple. Uh, If you have done something wrong, over and above the sort of the normal punishment, you get put on a blacklist if you meet certain conditions. And if you are on that blacklist, then there are certain things that you can't do. Now, there are by now dozens of blacklists at the central level alone. And some of them are really specialized. So there's there's a blacklist for um workplace safety infringements. Um, but there's also blacklists for people who misbehave on trains or on airplanes. And you know, we've all enjoyed the haha series of stories, you know, emerging from China. First time flyer wants a bit of fresh air, opens emergency exit, sort of thing. Right. That's what this is aimed at. Um the The first and broadest and most authoritative blacklist is run by the uh, Supreme People's Court. And that's the judgment, uh, the Supreme People's Court. And and that's the judgment, defaulter blacklist. And there the principle is very simple. If you have been convicted of a specific offense, and there is a list, uh, a very long list of uh, offenses falling under that, and you haven't met the terms of your conviction. You haven't paid your fine. You haven't paid the com- uh, the compensation. You you haven't met uh, whatever you know judicial order uh, was was meted out against you. Then you end up on that blacklist. And if you are on that blacklist, uh, you know you can't become a, a senior corporate official. Uh, you uh, you might find it more difficult to get a loan. But also because this blacklist is uh, very much targeted at debt defaulters. Right, the idea is. If you don't have money to pay your debts, if you don't have money to pay your fines, you don't have money for luxurious consumption. So you're not flying. You're not traveling first class on uh, high-speed railways. You are not staying in luxury hotels. You can still travel, but you'll be traveling heart seat in the in in Chuggy Chuggington uh, that stops at every station, uh, and you will uh, and and you will be spending the night in twelve to a room uh, travelers inns. You know that that's 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 how it works. There is by now a system that recognizes people who are on multiple blacklists, and that that sort of gets you a special uh, gold star blacklist uh, status. Um, and the idea is that these blacklists are public. So apart from the fact that you have the sanctions that attach to being on the blacklist, uh, there, there's a sort of naming and shaming uh, aspect involved. And that's very important because what we often forget is the social credit system isn't just aimed at individuals. It's also aimed against businesses. And so if you're going to be doing business with someone, if you're going to go to a restaurant uh, or you're going to buy expensive stuff from somewhere, you know, the idea is you can check whether or not they're fraudulent. Hmm. Manya, you wrote an
1: interesting piece about a university student or uh, somebody who was trying to gain admission to a university and was denied... Precisely because his father or or both his parents, I can't remember, uh, were on such a blacklist. And that that story got a lot of play in China. Can you talk about that and give us a a recap of what happened? Yeah,
0: that was actually one of the few uh, stories that I've seen this year on Chinese social media that actually became trending in relation to blacklists or the social credit system. And that happened, I believe it was in July And this was um, a young man who had scored really high in his gaokao, the national uh, university entrance exams, which is really hard to get a high score. Uh, So everybody understands that. And then he was denied uh, entrance because his father was on a blacklist for being in uh, debt. And he had failed for the past two years to repay a local bank a debt of about 30,000 US dollars. so yeah, this is, uh, but uh, uh, Jeremy Dom from uh, ChinaLawTranslate.com uh, later, uh, rightfully so, um, clarified this article saying that it was a, a private university, it couldn't have been a public university, uh, because they're not allowed to deny children um, of parents who are on a blacklist, but private Can can, private universities can and And did you you
1: bear that out? It was a private university. It was
0: and actually Jeremy uh, also was able to track down this Mister Rao was his name. So he he's actually he's so good in his research always right. Yeah, he actually tracked down the guy on the actual blacklist, saying you know this is really not a fake news story. He, everything is there. So it just shows, it shows how the system is. But uh, this story got um, within one day about 30,000 comments on Weibo with many people saying it's just unfair for children right. to be punished by the behavior of their parents. And um, this is quite a controversial aspect of uh, of this blacklisting system. And um, yeah, it reminds me actually earlier this year, there was that, that is actually not to do with the, the social credit system itself. But in uh, Guangdong, there was an experiment with people who had used drugs, their um, doors, front doors were being put on with graffiti, saying here, a drug using family lives here, even oh. if it was just one person who had uh, used drugs. And that also got a lot of controversy. Um, and many people were upset about that as well. And it reminded me of that. It should so, have
2: just
1: marked the kid's bedroom door, right?
0: Yes, yeah, well, so this, this, is, I, this idea, yeah, this is quite controversial.
2: But if I can just chip in, this does show something very important, right? This social credit system isn't just rammed down uh, the, the throats of the Chinese citizen. There, there is space for debate. In fact, uh, one of the local um, trials uh, run in a place called Ning, uh, close to Shanghai in Jiangsu province, was actually shut down after it was criticized quite, quite harshly. Uh, in national official media. Hmm. So, uh, you know, there is some jostling for, you know, we want the system on the whole, but there, as with any system, there are going to be negative consequences. And not to want to present the Chinese government as more benevolent than it is, or or indeed more intelligent than it is, but it is also too simplistic to say that this is just top-down imposed, no questions asked. Rohir,
1: while we've got you here, what about the tendency to conflate this with other systems of surveillance we read an awful lot about how facial recognition you know this ai technology is being deployed uh, not just in law enforcement purposes although that may al- already have sort of sinister dimensions to it in our thinking but also in things as 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 quotidian as not letting people get more toilet paper than they need at a public restroom i mean you've all maybe seen these these stories uh, what about this? Are there is there a relationship between this extensive system of of, of camera surveillance, biometrics, and whatnot, and the so called uh, and then the social credit system as we understand it?
2: It's a question that's a little bit difficult to answer because there is no single one social credit system. Right. There are hundreds of social credit systems that together sort of make up a social credit ecosystem, if that's what you want to call it, and they have a similar logic. So yes, there there are in some cities. There are facial recognition cameras that recognize people jaywalking. And if they do it too often, remember, the social credit system is an amplification device for existing laws and regulations. It was not lawful to walk through a red traffic light 10 years ago. It's not lawful today. What this changes is the ability to detect that. That being said... Um, when you look at the institutional environment in which the social credit system is built it's built around the national development and reform commission and the attached ministries and the people's bank of china for, uh, where where the financial uh, system is concerned the courts too right uh, uh and the courts with the with the supreme court the police is a little bit sort of on the outer uh it's it's involved in a couple of things but it's very much not in the center of that um so when we are talking about sort of hard law enforcement uh, or some of the stuff that's going, going on in Xinjiang, that's simply in a different bit of the Chinese state. And yes, similar technologies will be used. Um, but to say that it's all one big thing, I think, again, overestimates the level of integration between the different initiatives that the Chinese government is deploying. So I live in the United States, and I have been in the last year or so watching with
1: mounting horror the the, the rapid de- descent, the, the the spiral, the downward spiral of the of spiral of the U.S.-China relationship. And it's become quite obvious to me that this isn't about uh, just trade issues. It's certainly not about steel overcapacity and aluminum or agriculture or, or I think low low-end manufactured goods. It's very much about technology. It's uh, the United States anxiety over China's industrial policy and specifically this Made in China 2025 program uh, that wants to to, uh, propel China to the forefront in the uh, technologies of the fourth industrial revolution, especially in manufacturing advanced robotics and artificial intelligence and what have you. Uh, I can't help but think that, that there is a relationship between uh, this concern in the policy realm and the kind of coverage that we're seeing, the kind of interest that we're seeing now uh, in these sort of techno-authoritarian uh, news items, everything from, you know, the facial recognition for the toilet paper rolls uh, to things like this social credit system and, and what have you. And there's there's a lot more than that. You know, you've got that Bloomberg piece that came out uh, right before Mike Pence made his now infamous speech of, that basically declared an end to, uh, engagement with China. The, this piece that, that claimed that motherboards that were being manufactured uh, had a green rice side microchip on them that was providing a backdoor uh, to the Chinese government, presumably, and that these were installed widely in servers by, uh, that are owned by Apple and by Amazon. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy over whether there's any merits to this claim. But then there were other stories about how President Trump is using an unsecured iPhone that is being tapped by Russia and, of course, now by China. Uh, lots of these stories that all all focus on technology and uh Cast China as this some sort of you know techno authoritarian villain and uh, a mastermind. So I mean it's it's hard for me to s- not to see this kind of horrified fascination that the American media has with the social credit system as really part of this 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 same um, not entirely false narrative of China as a rising technology power. What do you guys make of this? Do you agree that this is part of a kind of new Zeitgeist? I,
2: I think that's a very interesting meta issue. Um, I grew up during the wonderfully boring and uh, naive, in comparison, sort of 1990s post Cold War, where we thought we had the world figured out, we being the West. We thought we knew how, how, how things were supposed to go, right? Free market economics, uh, open international trade, globalization, uh, liberal democracy, human rights, that was it. And the world uh the world outside of north america europe where you know these things weren't yet installed they they were sure to follow and in very many ways digital technology was the poster child of that particular way of thinking right the internet was going to open borders allow us all to communicate make us free end uh, authoritarianism and so on and so forth and over the last couple of years we've come to the conclusion that we were very very badly mistaken in that view that, uh, you know, at the meta level, not only, as, as I said earlier, has China defied our expectations that it would either democratize or stagnate or, you know, have socialism disappear into the dustbin of history. It's thriving. And so with regard to China, we, we, we believe that this cannot be possible in a just, in a right world. So they must have cheated. That's one. Two, our own societies aren't doing very great either. I mean, the United States is not a happy place right now. Uh, Britain isn't a happy place right now. M- many countries in Europe aren't happy places right now. But rather than r- self-reflect on this and sort of figure out our problems, it's a lot easier to simply say, you know, it's the Chinese what done it. Um, <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and it's uh, the Chinese what done it. Is that what you said? Yep. Uh <laughs> And, and and the third level again comes back to technology it's that we're now getting scared of technology right we've we've gone from this illusion that everything that emerged out of Silicon Valley was sort of you know unicorns peeing rainbows uh, <laughs> sort of sort, sort of thing to uh wait a minute my iPhone knows everything uh, tech companies are not paying their tax which is very much a European complaint Um or they 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 sort of vacuum away all of our data and sell it to uh, Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica, you know, or, or or our friends in Russia. So, same thing. <laughs> so, so the point is, when then a story like social credit comes up, it almost becomes therapeutic to scratch mm-hmm. that itch. In other words, so you're saying this is
1: it's about us. It's about us and not about China. Yeah, China's we, we are not value.
2: really interested in what is happening. In China. Otherwise, you know, more people would read my 15,000 word paper. Um, <laughs> That's funny. If, I've read it. <laughs> you know, if, if you're ever suffering from insomnia, it's a free download and a guaranteed cure. Um, but, 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 but so the point is, if we were actually interested in China, um, we'd want to get it right, even within the limitations of this is a complex thing. There's not very many of us studying this. It's not about that, it's about scratching an itch.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm. I'd like to add to that that one of the best-read stories on Watson Weibo ever was of a a little robot getting out of control a few years ago at the Shanghai Tech Conference. I don't know if you remember that. (laughs) I do. His name was Little Chubby, and he (laughs) completely went out of control and he hospitalized someone. And I wrote about that, and BuzzFeed immediately jumped on it, and everybody was like, "Yeah, you see, the Chinese robots are getting out of control. It's like...
1: (laughs) It's the beginning of the uprising. (laughs) Skynet is... uh, Uh, that's that's hysterical. I mean, we talked earlier about maybe the different cultural norms that that uh, have affected attitudes toward the uses and abuses of technology by authoritarian states. What about broader attitudes toward technology in society? Earlier today, we we were doing a panel, and, and somebody quoted me saying, you know, that China is in its Star Trek phase while we've moved into our Black Mirror phase, and I think that's that's probably quite quite true to some extent. Maybe, Mani, you've got your finger on the pulse like no one else. So, what are attitudes about technology like among ordinary, you know, Chinese internet users? Are they afraid of it?
0: Oh no, no, definitely not. What I notice is people are enthusiastic because uh, life is getting so much more convenient. Right. Um, and now, especially in urban China, I mean, technology is affecting the daily lives of people. To such an extreme extent, Uh, I have friends in China who in the morning when they get up from bed, they uh, order a cup of coffee, and within ten minutes, so they do it by meituan, um, sorry, yeah, uh, or cool. Waimai, or what is it called? And uh, and within ten minutes, there will be somebody knocking on the door with a warm cup of coffee. Then they take uh, a uh, a Didi, the you know the Chinese uh, Uber. Uh, the whole day, WeChat plays an enormous role. They get automatically clocked into their work with the Ding Ding app, also by Alibaba. And then they order food in at night, and I mean, the whole day is focused around technology. Um, so it's making life easier. It's making life more fun. Uh, so you don't see these dystopian discussions as much uh, in China. Or actually, I never really hear them at all or read about them.
1: Right. I think that, that's very interesting that, uh, you know, here in the West, our leading technologists and our leading scientists, the technologists like Elon Musk, I've, I've talked about this before on this show, or even Bill Gates talk frequently about Summoning the demon about the uh, about AI is going to you know pose an existential threat to our society. Stephen Hawking, the late uh, physicist, same thing. He he talked about it a lot. You don't hear that conversation not only in the high echelons of Chinese science, uh, but it's really relegated to the bowels of philosophy departments and you know obscure universities mainly. And you certainly don't hear it talked about in in ordinary day day to day life. That I think is really uh, telling, and, and says a lot about why this observation you've made about the the converse the different conversations about social credit are happening in, in the West and in China. That's that's really a fascinating. If thing. I may add one Absolutely. thing to that,
0: uh, I think there's also not only the the, the social credit system, but um, also. D- the digitalization of China in generally in general one of the biggest trends right now is the sharing economy uh China is right now the biggest sharing economy in the world with two years ago in Beijing you would not see any sharing bikes and that now there's 2 million i mean sometimes you cannot even walk on the uh, There's a
2: song about that
0: sidewalks <laughs>
2: oh yeah well yeah, there's I much understand.
0: more than 16 million or what was it it's 5 rat, million sorry um uh, but sharing economy and that so Uh, that is something that's really sustainable. I mean, people share umbrellas, people share bikes, people share cars, uh, sleep cabins, karaoke rooms.
1: Sex dolls. Oh, my God. But but anyway... It didn't um, work.
0: Shared sex
1: dolls is a bad idea. That's
0: a very bad idea. Uh, Basketballs, okay, but... Yeah. uh, 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 yeah. uh, Uh, But anyway, it makes... What do you do with your basketballs? uh, It's more... um, (laughs) <laughs> environment, environmentally friendly. It makes life better. It makes people more mobile. Um, so, f- for many people, this is also it's such a good uh, development. Yeah, yeah.
1: And I mean, as I was saying earlier today, it, it, the the improvement of of your tangible life has been has happened in lockstep over the course of the last thirty years or so with the improvement of the device that you've got. I mean, it's, it's, there's no reason for Chinese people to be as suspicious, perhaps.
2: Uh, there, there are sort of two other elements to that which I think are important. And one is that the gains in sort of quality of life, if that's what you want to call it, that you can make through digitization in China are, are, are simply much bigger. Right? How's that? How do you explain um, that? So when you look at um, digital payment here in China, by now you know you will have beggars that have a Alipay QR code in their yeah. begging bowl, so you can it pay through them electronically, and they have a smartphone on which they can they can receive it. Um, here, things like Apple Pay, Belgium is getting Apple Pay next year, <laughs> um, and but the reason for that is that we have credit cards, debit cards, and that's a system that works quite well for you know in terms of in terms of digital payment whereas china c- goes in one step from being a completely cash based economy where you know people were lugging around piles of 100 yuan notes to to do major purchases uh and where you had to have cash with you in order to to do to to, to buy anything where where mobile payment just makes that a lot easier and that's true i think across a swathe of you know daily activities the second is and this is particularly coming from a european you know we're used to a lot smaller cities but large chinese cities are tough to navigate and mm. so making life more convenient you know when you live in a city like zurich here or or leiden like i do you have your neighborhood supermarket it's around the corner you can walk there in 3 minutes try try and walking anywhere in 3 minutes in beijing Right. These enormous
1: sort of inhumanly scaled cities with ridiculously broad streets and this, yeah, kind of crushing... Uh, almost brutalist architecture everywhere. Yeah. Uh, you know, there is so much more to talk about with this topic, uh, and I would love to, to spend more time on it, but uh, I'm afraid we our time here is limited. So let's move on now to recommendations to that, that segment of our show. Uh, first, let me remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by Suck China. Sign up for our free email newsletter, and I mean this. Sign up for our free email newsletter. Do it. It's, it's just so good. It, it you know everything that I know about China comes through our newsletter now, and uh, it's it's amazing. I, I, I or, or better yet, subscribe to our premium access service. You get additional newsletters. You get bonus content uh, like this this podcast. You get it ad free. Not this ad. Keep this ad in. Uh, ad free and and early. You know we get you'll get it on Monday rather than on Thursday. And meanwhile, check out our growing roster of podcasts in the Seneca Network. Uh, these include now the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, Tech Buzz China, if you're interested in technology co- topics, you absolutely have to listen to it, uh, with the lovely hosts, Ray Ma and Ying Lu. We have the New Voices podcast on women in the culture space in China. And, of course, our newest member, the China Econ Talk podcast with Jordan Schneider. By the time that we've launched this, we will have launched uh, – we, we this show airs. You'll have hopefully heard – uh, our l- newest, newest member, which is called Ta for Ta. It's a another women-focused podcast about women at the top of their game in Chinese the world of Chinese business. So please uh, check those out. Now, on to recommendations. Uh, Mania, why don't you go first? What would you have for our listeners this week?
0: Um, What I would like to recommend, well, there's so much to choose from, uh, but one thing that I would like to mention is the platform Monk.hu, Manchu. Mm -hmm. It's by Fresco Samson, so that's Monk.hu.
1: M-A-N-C.hu.
0: Yes, exactly. And uh, why I admire him is because he's bringing out a very uh, dusty topic in a way where many people are still interested in, though, the Manchu uh, language and culture. And he... Added it at in a technological. Uh, he added a technological layer to it. So through uh, online, you can uh, study that and learn more about uh, Manchu.
1: Wow, that's that's yeah, that's it's a great. very cool yeah. project. So yeah. check it out. Yeah, there. I, I have met a couple of Manchu speakers in my life. It, it's a great. You, I would highly recommend you go on YouTube and you you search for uh, people actually speaking the Manchu language. It's fascinating to listen to. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. And I I suspect that it may be part of where the Beijing dialect came from because there's a lot of that kind of gargling pirate going on in there. (laughs) Okay, Rohir, what do you have for us? That's a great recommendation. Thanks. Manc.hu.
2: Well, Kaiser has very graciously given me permission to plug uh, a new project that I'm involved in as a co-founder. It's called DigiChina. It's an online knowledge platform uh, that we're working uh, with uh, New America with support of Leiden University's uh, Leiden Asia Center. And the idea is that we... Essentially, we provide information on the development of China's digital uh, economy and digital politics. So now it's Mm. blog posts and translations. But the future objective is to essentially build a a full wiki on institutions, companies, personalities, a lexicon on how certain terms should be interpreted uh, and not uh, uh, as we get more resources in the future. So we hope you find that a useful resource. But my real recommendation is a book that I'm reading at the moment by Oxford uh, history professor Peter Frankopan. It's called The Silk Roads. and uh, Plural S, right? Yes, plural S. uh, And and every chapter is like the road of faith, the road to Concord, and so on and so forth. Ah. It's a wonderful history of the landmass, essentially starting in Constantinople and ending in Beijing and everything that happens in the middle looks at... Uh, the rise and fall of empires, uh, the spread of faiths, the interrelationship of trade, politics, beliefs. Uh, I'm 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 around halfway through it, and I can't wait get to get back to the hotel room to continue reading. It's a wonderful <laughs> book for me
1: as a dedicated medalist. Anything that involves. Horseback uh, pastoral nomads slaughtering, you know, sedentary agrarian peoples is rocking. I love it. <laughs> that's good. So yeah, that'll be fun. I love Central Asian history a lot. And to your your other point about uh, the, your, your new initiative, the digital China, thing, uh, I am somebody who firmly believes that if you want to, if you want to count yourself among uh, people who understand China, uh, I mean that's that's it's maybe too broad, but. If you if you want to be counted among a, a, a respectable China watchers, you really need to know something about uh, the digital landscape in China. You need to know who these players are, who the the, the whole sort of cast of characters, you know, the dramatis personae uh, of of the the internet company founders and the, the new startups and the venture capital people and uh, the the thinkers in that space. You need to know sort of um, you know the the ins and outs of the the, the arguments that are happening on the chinese internet so read mania's uh site excellent site for that and about the internet in china you need to know the regulatory environment because this really is the crucible of contemporary chinese culture i mean you, you cannot understand china without really getting a good grasp of the internet it's that that crazy meme machine of the internet and if you don't get it you're you're toast so uh that's that's great my my recommendation uh in, in in addition to my hearty endorsement of all the, the aforementioned, uh, is a book that I'm reading right now as I was on the plane on the way over here. It's called The Black Count. Uh, it's called Glory, Revolution, Betrayal, and the Real Count of Monte Cristo, uh, which is, I, I, I neglected to write down the name of the author right now, and I can't remember his name. It's a really kind of banal name, but you look look it up, The Black Count. And uh, it's about the father of the the... Uh, novelist Alexandre Dumas who wrote of course The Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo and it's a remarkable story this this book won uh, the Pulitzer or I think or the National Book or the Pulitzer for uh, biography a few years ago and it's a, a really well constructed biography of this man who was born to a disgraced French nobleman and a Haitian uh, slave, an African slave he uh, grew up in you know the salons of Paris, on the eve of the French Revolution, became a uh, a soldier enlisted as a common private, rose through the ranks, and became general. Did all this as a black man in pre or and slightly post revolutionary France. So it's really really fascinating, and you can see where all the touchstones were that Dumas drew on. For his books Both The uh, Three Musketeers And The Count of Monte Cristo If you're a fan of that So I've had a delightful time Reading this book uh, you'll, you'll enjoy it too I'm sure So uh, with that A special thanks Of course I, I want to make A special thank To, to, uh, to Nico Luxinger And uh, to his colleagues Serena and Anna Especially For all of the, the Hospitality that they've shown To the three of us And thank you to, Of course To the Asian Society of Switzerland For inviting us And, and, and being so generous and uh, with that good night